0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, M'chavur, to Ann Gordon. Our daft today, Masachet Moed Katan, daft Chav Zion, page 27. Uh, if you have not yet, please sign up for our CM, which, God willing, will be on February 13th. Uh, we look forward to seeing uh, many of you there with us. Um, and, uh, you know, let us know if you want to share some Torah. We'll be hearing uh, from my brother, Dr. Michal Osban, who's an archaeologist, um, about um uh, life in the times of the Mishnah. Um, and with that, that will segue into, I was actually speaking to one of our other co-learners yesterday on the phone, Ahuva Helberstam, And one of the things we commented on about Moed Katan is um, through this discussion about, you know, what you can do or can't do on Chala and morning practices, I feel like this Masakhet in a way that was very different than the other Masakhetot really sort of gives us a window into sort of the day-to-day life of what it was like at the time that the Mishnah was written, um, and we sort of see that threat, right? What activities did they feel needed to be highlighted that were allowed on Chalamoid and not on Chalamoid? And in this Daf, particularly in Ahmed Aleph, I think we see this as well when it talks about the mourning practices. So the Daf begins with a very lengthy discussion about uh, the turning over, uh, this overturning <coughs> of the beds, um, and um, one of the things it talks about is, uh, you know, how many beds do you have to turn over? Do you have to turn over all the beds that are in the house? And it talks about this particular uh, type of bed called a Dargash. Um, And it's interesting to then see the Gemara sort of try to figure out, because remember, the Dargash is mentioned in a Brisa, which is Tanaitic literature. So then the Gemara comes, which is just a couple hundred of years later, and is trying to say, well, what is this type of Dargash, right? Um, You know, is it sort of the... Uh, this sort of extra bed that you would have in your house. It was sort of this like good luck mattress. It was kind of like decoration that you would have in the house, you know, because the idea was like you were wealthy enough that you had sort of this extra bed in your house. Um, or what they land on more is that it probably was like a type of bed based on the loops and this, the leather that they described with it that probably wealthy people took uh, for travel. If they were traveling somewhere, that, that was a bed that they would take with them. But again, it's such a lovely insight into sort of, you know, what, how are households constructed, right? Like many of us live today with the idea that we have a guest bedroom, right? And we all know that having a guest bedroom is actually a sign of having extra room. And so in the times of the Mishnah, the same idea, at least initially, again, they reject what the meaning of it is, but at least initially, this idea of a dargash of having sort of this extra bed, right, also is a sign of sort of a certain type of socioeconomic status that somebody would have gotten, or the idea that you had a traveling, bed with you, right? So we could also say that today, that was somebody who can afford to travel or go to hotels. Um, so again, I think this just one of the things to pay attention to throughout this masachat is sort of these little windows um, into daily life in the time of the Mishnah. And so right before we get to the new Mishnah, which Anne, you're going to read in the middle in a minute, um, you know, there's a, a, a brisa that I think also addresses a lot of these things. Tanu Rabanan, You're allowed to sweep and sprinkle water on the dirt floor of the house. Now, again, we learned a lot, some of this, when it came to Masachat Shabbat. But again, I think this is teaching us something interesting about sort of like, how were homes kept them? How did you make sure you weren't kicking up dust all the time, right? So you put water on to sort of keep the ground a little bit moist. Tony Yoke the Aval, right? And you can wash bowls, cups, jugs, and pitchers in the house of a mourner, which I also thought was interesting, you know, the idea that like you wouldn't do the dishes. But I imagine that doing the dishes in that time, they didn't have running water, right? So it really meant you had to sort of like take your stuff somewhere else and and do the washing. So for them, it was a much more sort of labor intensive, um, labor intensive activity, the aim um, of the, but you cannot bring incense or spices into the house of the mourner. And again, this gives us a little bit of insight, right? Like today, the way that we have ventilation in the house and food is refrigerated in the house. Um, and the way we have plumbing today in the house, right? We don't have odors in a house, the way that they probably had odors. And therefore it wasn't uncommon that people would sort of bring sweet smelling things into their house, good smelling things like incense or spices, uh, so that they would feel, you know, so that their house would actually uh, smell, uh, would smell good. And so then the Gemar goes on, Ini bar kapra, right? So the Gemar says, is this so didn't bar kapra say aim of mugmar, you can't recite a blessing over incense or spices. Because if you actually smell those things, you should make a bracha. Baruch ha ninan. So we could maybe learn from this that if you can't recite a, uh, uh, so we say, okay, maybe what we can infer from this is that if you can't recite a bracha over it, right? But it means you could bring it into the house. Whereas the previous prices said you couldn't even bring it into a house. Lo kasha. So the Gemara finally answers, this isn't a problem. And this, I think, is also very interesting. One, right, the b'risa is referring to the house of the mourner. In other words, where the, where the mourner is actually going to be during the week, that that you cannot bring spices or incense into. It shouldn't be made to be nice for uh, for the mourner. But, but the house of the consolers, his relatives, right, who are not necessarily... That, you know, they're not in mourning, but they are definitely going to be part of sort of the mourning process, let's say. They don't have to live as, you know, sort of with this unpleasant odor. They're allowed to have that in the house, uh, but they should not be, um, but they should not be smelling it. And so, again, I just think this particular Ahmed but all throughout and Moikatan, and I know we're coming to the end of it. And, you know, and we always start off our Masakto to sort of like, well, what's the, what are one of the themes that I'm going to get out of this? I felt like that theme of day-to-day life was very apparent here. Um, and it sort of makes sense that it became apparent in a that deals with chalamoed, right? Because chalamoed is sort of this, this you know, those days of Pesach and Sukkot are sort of this tension of like, it's not a chag, but it's kind of a regular day. So what can you, can, can you, or cannot do of your regular activity? And mourning, I think, is a, a, an example of like a major disruptor of your day-to-day life, right? When a person mourns, you know, anything that they, they needed to do or had to do sort of gets put on hold in a weird way. And so I think that's why in this particular masachet, we really see sort of these very, very nice kernels of of what life was actually like.
1: So I think it's like saying not everyday life, but to be able to understand what's not everyday life, we first have to understand what's everyday life and then understand that those things take a hiatus during Cholmoyd or get halted with mourning and so on. So it's kind of like a, it's a roundabout way, but I think it's very much a window into exactly, not exactly, because some of it is guesswork, but what life was like. Um, The Mishnah here, as we've seen, this has happened sometimes in the past and in other Masakhtar as well, where the Gemara that precedes the Mishnah is already talking about things that are going to appear in the Mishnah that comes, right? Because the daf is not organized in that same chronological way. So, the Gemara talks about things that it knows the Mishnah already knows, and then we've got this same kind of detail in the Mishnah. So here we go. molichin no, I'm sorry, iskutla, So the, one does not take that first meal, right, the first meal that the mourner is going to have in the house of the mourning which is going to, we need to unpack that, in, <coughs> excuse me, in a minute. Um, do not bring that first meal on a tavla, which is a small tray, or an iskutla, which is a bowl, or in a kanon, which is a narrow basket, or narrow mouth of a basket anyway. and But rather, b'salim, regular, ordinary baskets. So again, this is going to be all about Cholmide, right? And you don't say b'salim on Cholmide and Aval omdin but what we do, and this is you know a departure from thinking that you can't do anything on Cholamoid, they do have that receiving line for the avelim for the the people who are come who have come to console to provide comfort. they stand in a line and the mourners kind of pass through them or pass by them as they leave the cemetery sorry and then when the Mourners kind of send away the many the people have come, right? They can they get to do that, right? Meaning the all the people stand in a row, the mourners leave the cemetery. Fine, that's the process. They get the nihum, they get the comfort. And then they they, they send the, everybody home, right? Like you can leave, that you've done your job. This is the buyer of the deceased, buyer, beer, this word, right, is not put down in the street on Cholamoid. The idea is that when it wasn't Cholamoid, they would take this mitah, right, for the deceased and they would set it down in the street and everybody would come and, you know, he praises upon the person who has passed away. Um and but they don't do that during cholamid because they don't want to encourage people to come and give hespatim to give it eulogies because there's a you know a deterrence a prohibition against eulogies on cholamid nowadays people kind of get around it but it's kind of beyond the letter of the law um law such as this is and then it says the beers of the women were never set down um not even on cholamid because of kavod what does it mean kavod because what if I mean, this is not a pretty sight, you know, the women, um, any dead body, right, has some has a potential to have some more gruesome parts, you know, aspect to it. There's blood or if there's, I don't know. And so there's some concern that the woman in on the beer would be uh, somehow disrespectful to her. So they don't ever, you know, parade her, so to speak, through the street. Um, Okay, I want to come back to this phrase of Beit Evel or the Beit Menachmin because it's it's a subject of Machloket. They're not really sure exactly what this expression means, which goes back to the point of, you know, how are you going to define the terms of something that is not exactly your own practice later on? So the question is, is the house of the mourner where anywhere the mourner is? Is it the house where the dead body is? Is it the house where the family comes back to afterwards? Um... And then this speaks to the point of, you know, your the, the the pleasant smells here, Dana, that you're discussing, right? When they would bring herbs or whatever to air to dissipate an unpleasant odor in the home. So, for example, if Beit Avel means that's where the home where the dead body is, then you're allowed to do this on Cholomoi to dissipate the smell, you'll forgive me, of from the body, right? But if there's no dead body there, then you would not do this practice of, you know it's not just airing out of the house right it's it's making it more fragrant you wouldn't do it on a ho um because he's in mourning right meaning so it's not it's not really it's I would say maybe it's maybe it's not a hooid point maybe I maybe I uh, align that too closely to the discussion of the Mishnah but the point is that some of these practices that are specific to that era right they only make sense once you already know what else is going on so they say beta aval, and what can you do there? And what depends on the dead body being there? Or what can you not make your house fragrant because it would be too pleasurable or too, you know, I don't know, joy inducing? So you can't do that when you're in mourning. So, who's the mourner, or rather, who is the house? What does it mean for the house to be of the mourner? And the mission is not too bothered by this because the mission knows exactly what it's talking about, but the commentaries are not so clear. Um, so we're going to leave it as a we're not sure either because it, we're not. But the different possibilities, I think, are clear. And I understand also why there's a, a practical difference, right?
0: Right. I, I, and I think it's interesting to just see sort of all these things that they go through here. You know, like, uh, you know, the, I. well, I guess what's interesting here is on this stuff, we sort of move from the experience of the mourner to how we treat the body and you know when you kind of think about it you're like why didn't you get to the body piece right before the mourner and again i guess the the is really the experience of the mourner the focus is not really on is not really on the dead person
1: um i would hazard to say that that is a general presumption of judaism right i'm not saying it's accurate i think there's a great deal of attention given To kavod hamet, right, to the body itself. But I think that a lot of people relate to all of the details of of Avelut and burial, for that matter, as you know, the comforting is for the for the mourners, as opposed to the honor that's given to the mate. I'm not convinced that this is accurate in terms of. I don't know that Judaism really prioritizes the mourners as as compared to the kavod to the. To the person who's Right again.
0: I think it just was striking to me. Like once I saw it, I was like, "Oh, right. We haven't really talked about what happens with the body. <laughs> like we've just." Been but I think this is why that, think... that's how I mean it. For, but uh, I think
1: it's... the thing is where people get that idea.
0: Right, I, I I hear that. Right, and the fact that this is not till Davka Zion also makes it interesting.
1: Okay, I have one more this tiny little piece here to talk about, and it does actually you know, again, focus on the mourner and not the dead. Um, So what happens? Rev. Yehuda says in the name of Rav, There's a concept that you could grieve excessively over the dead. Meaning you don't allow yourself to be consoled. You don't allow the comfort to come from the people who come to bring you comfort. And it says you get like, Mitkashek, it's like rigid or stuck. stuck is my word, but rigid is really what this word, you know, allow it's part of what it means. Like it is hardened into grieving you me I guess midkash is really grief, but right? Um, grief on his death, on his dead, you me die. a So what happens is if he doesn't allow himself to be consoled when it's his turn, and it says he will weep for another person. What does it mean he will weep for another person? Meaning that's a really um, poignant and kind of terrible phrasing, right? So the question is, does it doesn't mean that he's he's weeping, that he's just like, you know, bereft and, and is never consolable for anything. Or does that mean that he's going to end up, you know, with something else to cry about because he didn't allow himself to move on here. And um, again, the the... I don't know what you want to call it. The metaphysics behind this, I think, is difficult and something to ponder for another day. So the Gemara gives us a story here. There's a woman who lived in Ravhuna's neighborhood. She had seven sons. One died. It's all Aramaic, of course so what happens? she weeps excessively after him or over him I guess Ravhuna says <laughs> to her don't do this <laughs> she doesn't pay him any heed right she doesn't listen to it he sends her again <laughs> if you listen to me <laughs> if you listen to me that would be good. If you don't, then you should prepare shrouds for another death. Which is again, really a harsh statement. And then in the end, they all died. Meaning she didn't listen to Ravhuna. All of her sons died. What Ravhuna knew going in here is unclear. Why they would all die, unclear. Everything here is very murky. Carla, so in the end, and, and she continues, I mean, the whole time she's excessively mourning, although when she loses seven sons, I'm not sure that that's not justified. In the end, he says to her, "Prepare the shrouds for yourself. And then she dies. Um, meaning, Which is so
0: harsh. I mean, it's harsh.
1: It's so harsh. I, I mean, I'm not sure that at that point it might not have been a relief to her, you know? But but it's un, like, the story is so powerful and terrible, even if it's still like kind of like the meaning of it is not entirely clear, because it's the illustration of the like the halachic statement of don't mourn excessively, that there is such a thing as you tear me die. you know, the idea that you might think, well, what could be more powerful, you just go to the nth degree, because you're demonstrating your kavod hamet, and you're demonstrating how much you cared and how much you loved and so on. And the answer is no. At the end of the day, there is something that is called, you know, appropriate, appropriate sorrow. And everybody knows that that's there. And we've got pages and pages of Dapim talking about the practices of the mourner. And then there's a Yotermidai. There's the thing that can be just too much. And you've crossed a line. And Ravuna warns her, you know, get yourself together, right? And She can't do it. And her life really, truly falls apart.
0: Right. And I just I don't know. It's a weird story. I mean, on the one hand, I understand uh, the Gemara's idea of, you know, sort of having excessive grief. Um, And I personally have been through something. I lost my father at a young age. But I don't know. There's something harsh about that response. And I think finding that balance or judging somebody else's experience of grief is complicated and very personal. At least that's how I, you know, that's how I felt about this particular passage.
1: So I think I think that that might be the difference. Meaning I think that there's going to be different gradations of how people feel grief and that's all personal and people should be left alone. And then there's something that's called you tear me die. And I don't know where that mark is. Ravuna apparently did, right? But I don't know where that mark is. But the fact that the idea that somebody could kind of like get stuck in it, I think is a is an important lesson. Like the idea that you kind of like, loop back upon yourself and you kind of lose sight of everything else around you, this woman had six other children and she's ignoring them, right? Like it's a complicated, messy story. I don't think that it takes away from the individual's measure of grief. I think that it's it's just, uh, the reason I found it to, to be so interesting is the recognition in the Gemara that there ca- that there is a line that at some point can be crossed. I think that most people don't cross it. This is a tiny little passage in a whole masache, you know?
0: Right. And 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 as you said, how do you identify when it's actually crossed? Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodjan website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Tom with Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.